Father, thank you for uh, your grace and your love in our lives. Um, we acknowledge your presence here this morning. Pray that your spirit would be powerful in our midst. That he would take the truth that we talk about today and drill it into our hearts and our minds and ultimately into our lives so that we live as kingdom people. We pray this in the name of Jesus and we pray for his sake. Amen. We've been flying about 30,000 feet. We've been talking about this, uh, this idea of the kingdom of God. Uh, today, we want to try to land the plane a little bit and be a little more practical. We, we did this series because we really believe that uh, the kingdom is a transformative concept. And we're trying to persuade you, in a sense, to put on kingdom glasses uh, so that you see your life so that you see the scriptures, so that you see church, that you see your relationship with God, all through the lens of the kingdom, because we think it's the appropriate in which to see all of those things. Um, and believing that if you do, it will change everything. That's why the first week we gave you those little micro cloths that said, see the kingdom, is so you could be reminded, oh yeah, I'm supposed to put on kingdom glasses and think kingdom and read the scriptures that way. So what I want to do this morning is talk about where we've been a little bit, make a couple observations, uh, and then talk about three rhythms that we think help us incorporate this notion of kingdom into our lives. So that's kind of where we're going. Uh, when we started this series, the first thing we talked about was simply how essential the kingdom is. If you go into the ministry of Jesus in the New Testament, one of the things that stands out to you is that Jesus talked about this idea of the kingdom all the time. It was fundamental to his identity. It was fundamental to his purpose in coming. It was his mission. It all centered around this notion of the kingdom. Even though we don't talk about it much, he did. If he was preaching here today, he'd be talking about the kingdom of God because it's central to his understanding of what is happening in the universe and the world. So we need to understand the idea of the kingdom. It should be essential for our faith as well. We see it in Scripture. Second thing we did is we tried to define the kingdom. And this is where we run into trouble because when we put that word kingdom out, we think of a place, a realm over which a king rules, and that touches on the idea of the kingdom. But it's really not the central focus in Scripture. The word kingdom is from a Greek word basilia, and it simply means to rule or to reign. And that's the notion of the kingdom. That, that Jesus broke in to this world and reestablished his rule and his reign in life. And when we pursue his rule and reign, when we do his will, his kingdom becomes operative. And we're to be about that kingdom in all aspects of our life. So the kingdom of God is God's rule and reign. Then we talked about a factor about the kingdom that makes it even more difficult to understand, and that's this notion that the kingdom is both present and future. It's now and not yet. The not yet speaks to a time in the future at the second coming of Christ. The kingdom will be presented in its fullness. Christ will set up his kingdom on earth. He will rule in a physical way. It will come in its fullness and his rule and reign will be operative in every aspect of life. But that's future. But the kingdom overlaps now. 
it got inaugurated when Jesus became incarnate. When he visited, he established his kingdom. Not in its fullness, but in a way we could participate in it. And the result of that is that we live in the midst of the tension of the now and the not yet. The reality is we are kingdom people. We are part of his kingdom, even though we haven't left this realm. And this realm, the prince of the power of the air is saying we live in the world's realm, but we are kingdom people. And that explains a lot of the Christian life for us. There's a sense where our salvation is present, we experience, but the fullness of our salvation will come in the future. There are times when we pray for healing and nothing happens and it seems like the kingdom is absent. And other times where the kingdom breaks through and someone is healed and the kingdom is manifest. There, there are times when people don't come to Christ and there's no sense of revival. And other times where there's huge revivals in history and the kingdom comes when we see it. It's like there's a veil between us and the fullness of the kingdom, and at times we get glimpses of the kingdom. So we live in the midst of the now and the not yet. And then last week, we tried to explain all this, putting it together in the grand story. We talked about the fact that at creation, God established his kingdom in his realm, over his people, his rule and reign were lived out. Then we talked about the fall, which was a rebellion, both on a cosmic level and a human level. People rebelled and tried to set up their own kingdoms. And uh, everything at that moment was tainted by sin. And then we looked at the fact that God made a decision not to start over, but to actually rescue his creation and rescue us and and began this process of redemption. And we saw that he worked through Abraham and Israel and the prophets. Eventually, Jesus comes, breaks into this world to reestablish his kingdom, to win back the rebellion. And he does it by going to the cross, dying, and on the cross defeating sin and death and Satan and reestablishing his rule and reign. And then we talked about the coming restoration, that someday in the future, Jesus is going to come back and physically set up a little kingdom on this earth, which we will all be a part of in resurrected bodies and live with him in the renewed world and the renewed earth. And that's the kingdom story. So the question is, what difference does that make in how I live my daily life. How does that play out for me? How does that reshape my thinking and my living and my experience of God? What does that look like? Well, to answer that, I want to make a couple observations and talk about the three rhythms that we think help us engage with the kingdom. The first observation is this, and I think this helps us understand some of the experiences we have in life although we don't always articulate it this way. The first observation is this. We live in the midst of a cosmic battle. Satan is a defeated foe, but not a destroyed foe. He is still active and alive and living out on planet Earth, and he is our adversary. He is actively working against the advance of God's kingdom. Actively working against the advance of the kingdom in my life, in your life, in our church, in our community, in our world. He is our enemy. He is the murderer. He's the author of evil. He is behind the scenes working against the works of God. 
I like how C.S. Lewis puts it. He says, we live in enemy-occupied territory. That is what the world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed in disguise and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. But you know the problem? We don't recognize it. I mean, we are rational people. We live in an enlightened culture. We're technologically savvy. We nod our heads to the supernatural, but we don't really think it impacts our lives much. I mean, think about it. In the last year or two years, where, where has Satan been active in your life and the struggle for the kingdom and living it out? Can you identify it? Most of us, well, yeah, kind of, I think he has, but it would be hard to know exactly why. And it's because we kind of downplay the supernatural. If we lived in a third world country where it's more evident and, God, and Satan isn't so subtle, we, we'd be able to tell you incidences where, where the supernatural broke through. But in our lives, it's so subtle. We hardly ever look at it. I think it would be fascinating for us to be able to pull back the veil sometime <laughs> and see where Satan really has been at work. And I've got this feeling that we'd be shocked. We'd be, oh, real? I, you're kidding. Satan is actively working against us. Paul says that we're to understand his schemes. We're to put on the full armor of God. It's like we're engaged in this cosmic struggle on a daily basis, but we have no awareness of it. Hardly any at all. Which leads us to the second observation. Because we live in the midst of a cosmic battle, we have to be empowered and must depend on the Spirit. And this is really fascinating for me. I, I want you to think for a moment how Jesus accomplished what he accomplished when he was on earth. I mean, how did, where did he get the power to work his miracles? How did he uh, get the blind man to see and the crippled man to walk? How did he feed the 5,000? You say, well, Nick, that's really simple. He was God come in the flesh. God can do those kind of things. That's true, but in Philippians 2, we know it as the kenosis passage. In the passage, it tells us that Jesus emptied himself of his qualities of deity. What that means is he, he gave up the independent use of his omnipresence and his omnipotence and his omniscience. And decided not to use those. So that, that means, get this, that when he was on earth, he functioned like any human being. Now, if that's truth, then it becomes an important question. How, how did he pull this off? We get a little insight in Acts chapter 10, verse 37 through 38. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John prepared? How God, this is from a sermon I think Peter's preaching, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. Notice one, that it recognizes the cosmic struggle. There's this, this, this battle going on between the devil and Jesus. But in the battle, what gives Jesus the ability to do what he does is that he's anointed with the Spirit of God. And that spirit gives him power. Now that's fascinating. And then you throw in John chapter 14, verse 12. This is Jesus speaking. He says, Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me, 
That's us. We believe in Jesus, right? We will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. And that, that's an astounding <laughs> statement. Jesus is saying, look, I'm leaving, and, and when I leave, you're going to become my hands and feet, and the responsibility is going to be on you, you guys who believe in me, to accomplish the things I've been doing. Well, how do we do that? It has to be the same way he does it, through the power of his Spirit. I wonder how often we, we, we basically live out our Christian life almost devoid of His Spirit because we're not dependent or expecting God to do amazing things in our lives. Dallas Willard says that the Holy Spirit is, is like the electricity in a house or the electricity in a building. It's there, and it's incredibly powerful. But you have to access it. You have to plug in. And if you don't plug in, you're basically doing it all on your own. And I wonder sometimes if that's how most of us live. We don't really plug in. We don't really expect God to do amazing things. We don't expect the kingdom to break through. When Jesus heals, when he works an act of a miracle, when he walks on water, when he feeds the 5,000, all those things are the kingdom breaking through. It's the presence of the kingdom. It's the veil being taken back. And suddenly you see the kingdom. And what Jesus is saying is that same thing is to be happening in my church, in my people. God's at work. We're in the midst of a cosmic battle between good and evil. And we're empowered by the Spirit. And all that is in the context of the kingdom. Now, given the fact that we're in a cosmic battle empowered by the Spirit, we, we have a mandate. And that mandate comes from Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, which says this, So, do not worry, this is Jesus speaking, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. I never spent much time thinking about that, but when you step back from it, do you know what those three things are? What you eat, what you drink, and what you wear? They are the fundamental basics you need to survive in life, right? That's it. Eat, drink, wear. You can throw in shelter, all right? And Jesus is saying, don't worry about the basics, don't worry about the fundamental things you need to survive. I will take care of that. You have a father, right? You have a father who knows what you need. And he throws in the contrast. See, he says, don't you understand the pagans? The pagans are people, are people who don't have God in their life. And basically, Jesus is saying, look, the pagans run after those things, and the reason the pagans run after those things is they have to. They don't have somebody looking out for them. If they don't take care of what they want to eat, drink, and, and, and wear, they won't have it. But not you. You're different. You have God in your life, and he knows what you need, so he'll take care of that. So I want, you, I want to give you an alternative thing to focus on. This is what your life should be about. He says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Seek first God's rule and reign, his will being done in every dimension 
of your life. That is what needs to consume you. That is what needs to be your focus. You ever seen if you have a bunch of iron filings and you put a magnet in the middle of them and all those iron filings just line up? I think that's what Jesus is saying should happen in our lives. He should become the focus. Everything should line up around him. And our commitment to him needs to impact every dimension of our life. He needs to be our absolute Lord. He needs to be supreme. It's interesting to me. We often talk about Jesus being our personal Savior, and he is. But do you know Jesus is only called Savior 16 times in the New Testament? Do you know that he is called Lord 420 times? Do you understand the point? He does save us. But his saving isn't about us. His saving is so that we can serve him that he can become our master and our Lord and everything in our lives can line up to him. And what that means is Jesus cannot simply be an add-on to our lives. You know, a nice aspect. We don't have a religious side to our life. You know, he wants to be the centering, guiding, supreme person. And he's saying, and this is what's radical, he's saying, even when it comes to the fundamentals of life, I don't want you focused on those. Don't worry about them. Focus on me. Focus on the kingdom. Focus on my will being done in every aspect of life, in your life, in your family, in your community, in your church, in your nation. That's what needs to consume you. And then what it really gets interesting, he says, seek first the kingdom of God And then it adds, and his righteousness. And typically when we read that, what we think about is that we are to focus on Jesus and pursue moral goodness, pursue his righteousness. And that's a good thing to do, and we should do that, but I'm not sure that's what he's getting at here. The word for righteous is a Greek word, dekao, and oftentimes is translated justice. And it's not talking about personal righteousness. It's talking about corporate justice. And what he's saying is, he's saying, don't just be focused on you. Be focused on the bigger picture around you. Turn outward, seek my kingdom, and seek my justice. Justice has to do with people getting their due rights. Seek my justice. Seek the common good around you. So, so, so seek the common, seek justice in your community. Seek justice in your city. Seek justice in your nation. When you go to the Old Testament, you talk about justice. There were three people that God was very concerned had their rights met, that they experienced justice. The poor, the widow, the orphan, and then also along with that was the immigrant. Man, Interesting. Those are the, the disenfranchised groups in the culture that oftentimes are oppressed and abused. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 you have to seek justice for them. And that's part of the mandate of seeking the kingdom. And suddenly, it's now not just about my personal, private relationship with Jesus, but it's about this notion of corporate righteousness of seeing the kingdom come, not just in me, but in, in, in all of life. 
You see, too often we have shrunk the gospel down to, to Jesus simply being my personal Savior and as a way of escape out of this world that's going to be destroyed. So I get Jesus, I get forgiveness, and I get to go to heaven. And although there's some truth to that, that's really not all Jesus was about. He was about preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And the gospel of the kingdom was the good news that God had broken in and inaugurated his kingdom, was going to defeat sin, death, and evil, and establish something for the future. That was the good news of the kingdom, and that's the gospel, and that's what you and I have embraced and committed ourselves to. And suddenly, there's a big agenda in seeking the kingdom. So what's that look like? Well, at Waterstone, we've tried to, to articulate what that looks like in our lives by talking about three rhythms, okay? We talk about the rhythm of transform, which is God's kingdom coming in us. We talk about the rhythm of neighboring, which is God's kingdom coming in others. And we talk about the, the rhythm of restoration, which is God's kingdom coming in the world. Now, rhythm is simply a regular reoccurring uh, sequence of events, actions, or processes. We usually think of rhythm in a musical context, and it's just the reoccurring beat in the music. It's the rhythm. It's the thing that holds everything together, and it lays the foundation on which we create music that moves us and shapes us. That's rhythm. Rhythm in terms of the kingdom is this, a regular reoccurring practice that engages us in God's kingdom coming in us, in others, in our world. What are the things we have to engage in that will help the kingdom do that? Come in us, others, and the world. Let's talk about the rhythm of transformation. It's the first thing. Transform, the kingdom coming in us. Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2 says this. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers... By the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. One of the most important words in this verse is therefore, because that word is reaching back to the first 12 chapters of the book of Romans. In the first 12 chapters, we're told about what Jesus has done in terms of dying for our sin, rescuing creation, making the payment. In other words, all kingdom stuff. And basically what Paul is saying is since Jesus has established himself as king, your response then is to give total commitment. Think about what a sacrifice is. A sacrifice is an offering, and when you give the offering, it, it's burned up or it's killed or it, it, it's sacrificed. It's totally given over. And this is an interesting thing. He's saying we're to become living sacrifices. We're to become people who have totally committed, given our total allegiance, our supreme loyalty to Jesus as, the, as a sacrifice. And he says that's acceptable, God, and that's your spiritual worship. That's how we declare Jesus worthy. In other words, that's a normal response to the fact that Jesus is king. If he is truly king of the universe and has truly died for us and redeemed us, then the normal response is to give him complete allegiance. So that's a decision we make to commit our lives to him. Then he goes on, he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, 
what is good and acceptable and perfect. I like this word transformed for a number of reasons. It, it, it is uh, in the present tense, so it's something that's ongoing. You make a one-time commitment, but transformation is, is this process that takes a lifetime. The, the word itself is morpho, and it means to change. And every time I think of transformation, I think of fly fishing. And the reason I do is, if you ever go fly fishing, you, you fish with, with little flies that represent aquatic creatures in the stream. And, and to, to catch fish, you have to understand what stage the little mayfly is in. Because they're born as an egg, they turn into a nymph that swims in the water, then they transform, they molt, they shed that skin, they actually go from this little thing swimming in water to this thing that has wings. It flies up or it emerges up onto the surface. The wings come out. They sit on the surface. That's where everybody sees fish taking them. And then they fly away. They mate. After they mate, they die and they turn into spinners, spent spinners, and they come back to the river and they lay with their wings out. And depending what's going on, you have to fish that particular part of the hatch. But I was thinking about that. That's transformation. And what's interesting about the transformation of the little bugs in the stream is it's radical. I I mean, a nymph to a mayfly is a huge transition. I mean, fundamentally, everything changes in that insect. And I think that's what God is looking for in us. An absolute fundamental change at the very core of who we are because now we're in this relationship with the king of the universe. And he wants us to, to, over time, be different. Our identity changes. Our character changes. Our values change. Our priorities change. Our behavior changes. Our language changes. Our attitudes change. Every, everything about us is transformed. That's the expectation. The other thing that is interesting about this word transformed is it's in the passive. And what I mean by that is it's not something you do, it's something that happens to you, which is really strange. I'm, supposed, I'm responsible for being transformed, but I can't transform myself. It has to happen to me. Look with me at Philippians chapter 2. It gets described this way. Work out your own salvation. So we're working hard to make this happen, but why? With fear and trembling, for it's God who is at work in you, both to will and to do his good. So God is the one who does the actual transformation in my life, but I have a part to play in terms of letting it happen. In a sense, we are the keepers of our soul. We are the ones who are responsible for the transformation of our lives. Where you end up in your spiritual journey is up to you. Now, some of that is God working at you indirectly, but you're always there letting him work. You're the keeper of your soul. There's an old legend about a little town in the Alps. Um, In this town, there was a little stream that came through that was crystal clear, pure, great water, and it was fed by all these little springs up in the mountains. A long time ago, the town had hired what they called a keeper of the springs. 
He was an old man, and what his job was was to go around to these different springs and, and to take out the twigs and the leaves and, and all the dead animals and all the stuff that would pollute the water and keep them clean so that as the water came down the mountain, when it got to the town, it'd be pure, drinkable, great tasting. And it was. I mean, the, the, the birds, the swans swim in the stream, the fish swim in the stream. It was great water. It was, it was, it was wonderful. Well, the town hall people met together and they were trying to figure out their budget and things were tight and they had, you know, projects and roads to repair and projects to do and taxes to collect. And nobody really understood what this keeper of the spring was and nobody was holding them accountable anyway. So they decided to cut him out of the budget. So they stopped paying him his salary. So he quit. And at first, nothing happened. The water kept flowing. Everything was fine. But over time, things began to change. Leaves fell into the springs and twigs and farm refuse. And the silt filled in and backed up the little stream. The water began to, to decrease in flow. And it began to change in its taste. It became brackish. And eventually, people were even getting sick. Well, the town father's held an emergency meeting, and they figured out they had to find some way to restore this man's salary. They eventually found the money, and they did, and he went back to work. And over time, he cleared out the leaves and the twigs and the farm refuse and the silt, and the water began to flow its normal level again, and it was pure, and it was clear, and it was fresh. Folks, we are the keeper of the springs in our lives. That water is our soul. And we're the ones responsible for how it flows into our lives. Now, most of the things we will do are pretty indirect, are hidden, are unseen. But those routine practices that keep the water flowing are the things that will determine how God works in us. And most of the things that really cause spiritual development, transformation in our life, are pretty basic. This summer, my wife has had some health issues with her back, and typically she plants flowers and flower boxes along the back and the front and in the entrance to our house. And I noticed this year that they were really looking bad. I mean, they were dying left and right, and I was wondering what happened to her green thumb. And then I finally figured out that because of her back, she wasn't able to water them on a very consistent basis. So magnanimous me, with some pressure from her, I took over the watering duties. And I discovered something really fascinating. You know what? Water makes a big difference. (laughs) It really does. I mean, if you water plants every day, they grow. It's just amazing. I began to water the plants, and suddenly they started doing great. I mean, you should see them now. They actually have flowers, and I'm responsible for that. It's amazing, just because I'm watering them every day. Just basic stuff. Just thinking about that in light of our spiritual lives. There are some basic things. They're not profound. They're simple. They're like water to a plant, but they have an impact. And without them, you don't grow. So I sat down and I tried to make a list. Here's some of the things I came up with. 
one of the things we need to do is read the scriptures and pray. You say, well, duh. Well, yeah, duh. Because, and it's not a legalistic thing, i got to get my 15 minutes in a day. It's reading the scriptures as part of a relationship where I'm communicating with God and entering into this relationship. And if you say, well, Nick, I don't know how to read the scriptures. Just get a great pair of living Bible, something that's simple to read, and just read it. You will figure it out. Okay? Just read the darn thing because it's God's truth and it's his way of communicating to you. And then you pray, which is just your way of communicating back. And it's not like I read my Bible and I prayed, my day will be great. It's not an instantaneous impact. But, you know, the, root, <laughs> the ruts of routine become the grooves of grace in life. So you work in the discipline and reading the scriptures and praying over time. Guess what? Things grow. Second, attend church. You know, it's interesting. You go to Acts and you discover the early church met together every day, early in the morning, to listen to the teaching of the apostles, to pray, to worship, to celebrate the Lord's Supper. When we started Waterstone, the average attendance was about, of a regular committed person, was about uh, three times a month. The average regular attendance now is maybe 1.5. We've gotten busy. And our commitment to church has gone down. And as a result, a lot of people see it as optional. But do you know attending church, gathering together, and realizing you're part of the king's community has an impact that's incremental over time? That if you really become that sporadic in church, it will impact your spiritual development Because God works through his corporate body and we have to gather together to worship and praise him and people need to hear the word of God taught and we need to be held accountable and in community. And that all happens in this context of this thing we call church. It's not an optional activity. American individualism has taught us that we can have a, a, a personal and private relationship with Jesus. But that's not the New Testament going to have a personal relationship with Jesus, but it can't be private. It is always in community and is always corporate. In fact, I thought it's just a good application today. I was going to ask you to take out your phone, and I want you to set a repeating appointment, okay, for 1030, and make it the rule. And if you don't come, don't come because that's an exception. Don't make coming the exception. Treat it like an appointment with God's family. And give it the priority it deserves. See, our problem is we have too many options. And because we have so many options, its priority goes down. But that's a choice. That's a choice. If you want to be here every week, you could do it. You can do it. Third, join a small group. Right, you, you need community, we walk together, and you have to enter into each other's lives. And the only way you do that is in the context of relationship. And relationships are formed on a smaller level. And we need people in our lives that know what's going on. It's part of how God's Spirit works in us through other people. And then find a place to serve. Service is interesting. Not only do we make an impact on others, but the service itself has an impact on us because we begin to live out our calling that God has put in our hearts 
and it's transformative. So transformation. Second rhythm. First one is transformation. That's God's kingdom coming in us. The second is neighbor, the kingdom coming in others. Matthew 28 kind of gives us this mandate. Great commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. You know, for the first 29 years that I preached on this text, I never noticed that the first phrase in this, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, is a kingdom statement. Do you know what Jesus is saying? Look, I'm king. All authority, right? The rule and reign is mine. I'm king. I've established my kingdom. And notice, he says, therefore, in light of the fact that I'm king, I want you to go and share that reality with the world and not simply make converts and get decisions, but make disciples. And when you understand that's a kingdom statement, it changes the motivation to do outreach and share the gospel with others. Because the motivation, if Jesus is king, is that as king, he has the right to have people's allegiance. Sharing his reality with others and helping them become disciples is a way of honoring him. And since life is all about him and about the kingdom, that becomes the primary motivation. It's really, we don't share the gospel just because people need Jesus, although people need Jesus. We share the gospel because Jesus is king and he has a right to be acknowledged as king in everybody's life because someday he will be. And it changes the motivation Now, there's a second part to that, and that is people's need. If Jesus is king and we don't become a part of his story and we try to live our lives outside that story, what we're fundamentally doing is wasting our lives. So when you see people who don't know Jesus and are living without him, it should break your heart. And it doesn't matter how happy they may appear, how much money they have, how successful they are. If they're not lined up with the kingdom story, then in the end, it doesn't matter. Jesus talks about that. He says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? What gives meaning to life is being part of the kingdom story, acknowledging Jesus as king. Apart from that, life doesn't have a ton of meaning because all of life is about him. But do we see that? Do we see that? There was a young man named Cameron who, uh, 19 years old, was an art student, went down into the subway in New York. And when he was standing on the platform, he had a seizure. And uh, he lost control. And, and when he had the seizure, he fell in to the uh, subway channel there where the tracks run, fell down on the tracks. There was a train coming, and there were people around, but nobody wanted to take the risk of doing something. Um, There was a man named Wesley, 54 years old, two little daughters standing there, and he realized, "I, I, I gotta do something. If I don't, this kid's dead. So he jumps down onto the tracks. And there's not enough time to lift Wesley out. So what he does is he 
rolls Wesley over in between the tracks and there's a drainage area there and he lays on top of him and they're just low enough so that when the train comes by, just by a few inches, they're missed. And neither of them is hurt. Well, Wesley is <laughs> acknowledged as a hero. I mean, the media gets a hold of this and the mayor of New York gives him an award and his boss brings him a hero sandwich and uh, he's known as the Harlem hero and uh, Donald Trump gives him $10,000 in a trip to Disneyland and the Metro... Paul, I don't know why. I don't know why Donald Trump does have what he does. Anyway, <laughs> I'm sorry. That was inappropriate. Uh, the metro station gave him a lifelong uh, uh, supply of metro cards, and he even got on the David Letterman show. Okay? And the question that he was asked is why did you do it? Why did you do it? And his answer was really simply he says, I'm not a hero or anything, I just saw somebody in desperate need. I think sometimes we don't share our faith because we don't see people in desperate need. We don't understand the reality which we live in in the story of the kingdom. We don't, don't play out the, the fact that people are ever-living, never-dying souls who will spend eternity either with Jesus or apart from him, either under his kingship or away from him. And if that reality grabs a hold of our heart, we become more bold. You see, the truth is, the more we love God and the more we love people, the more passionate we become about sharing His reality with others. At Waterstone, we're, we're trying to encourage people to do this. God has placed you in a, a, a sphere of influence. There's people in your life that He wants you to reach. They're your mission field. We're asking you just to think of one, to pray for them, to engage with them, and to share when the opportunity comes. Third rhythm, restoration. This comes out of Matthew chapter 5, this little passage in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth. And he says, if salt has lost its taste, how shall it be salty and restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled on people's feet. And he says, you're the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that you may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So we're salt, which means we're different than the culture at large. And we're light. We're to shine into the darkness. And, and the notion is, is that we have to be people who engage our culture and understand that we're to have a transformative impact on the culture and bring about restoration. It's like each of us is given a brick and we're building this little part of the wall and it all makes this magnificent structure. But we'll never get the structure built until the end of time when Jesus comes back and cataclysmically makes the structure himself. And when he does that, our little part of the wall becomes part of something grander. We are to be people who work for the common good, who engage our culture, who make a difference in the world. When I first became a Christian, um, this is during a fundamentalist time, this was a long time ago, the church I became involved in 
preach the gospel of personal salvation, which is you accept Jesus and you get to escape to heaven because they taught that the world was going to be destroyed. And at first, that was fine. I, I mean, I was growing in my faith. Uh, I, I wanted to share with people. It gave me significance and meaning. But as time went on, I began to realize that if that's all there was, it was a pretty thin story. Because in that story, the only thing that had significance was sharing your faith or reading your Bible or doing something spiritual. But all the rest of my life, my work, my play, all the relationships, they meant nothing. Because in the end, everything was going to be burned up and you escape. It was like we were on this life raft and the ship was sinking and our only job was to get as many people on the life raft as we could. And I thought, there's got to be more to this story than that. And then I got involved in a church named Bear Valley. It's the church that planted Waterstone. And they had a different understanding that came from their understanding of the kingdom. And rather than seeing the church as a fortress to hide out away from the culture, they saw the church as a force to engage the culture and to bring about change. And, And they were involved in all these incredible ministries, working with the poor and working with the homeless and working with unwed mothers and providing housing and trying to find jobs. And everybody had a task. And suddenly I saw the story expanded. And I understood that we were to be about bringing the kingdom in every aspect of life. To see it advance. To see God's will done in every dimension of life. And suddenly life took on significance because now my work life had meaning because I could do it unto the king. And that took on significance. And play had meaning because I was enjoying the king's grand creation. And, And suddenly all of life was filled with significance. And that was transformative. And then as I studied more, I began to realize that this earth really is not destroyed. It's judged, and it goes through a, a purifying, burning. But, but this world is not destroyed. There's a continuity between this world and the next. And the world is renewed and remade. And at that time, the things we do in this world continue on. It's like the resurrection. Everything's transformed and becomes like it was intended to be. But I'm still me, and you're still you just now in a resurrected body, and suddenly all of life had significance. And that changed everything. You see, the kingdom makes a difference. And the church, the reality is, if we understand the kingdom, then as a church, we have this huge agenda in our culture. We're to care about people's salvation, and we're to be committed to missions and promoting the gospel, and we're to care about the poor, and the hungry, and the oppressed, and injustice, and engage all of life, and teach how work makes a difference in the kingdom, and play makes a difference in the kingdom, and how Jesus is king over everything. It's putting on kingdom glasses, and it makes a difference. I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to end the message with a corporate commitment and then we're going to take the Lord's Supper as kind of a symbol of our commitment to the kingdom of God. This is a bit of a confession and a bit of a commitment. So I'll read the leader parts if you read the all part. 
we confess that all too often we have ignored the centrality of the message of the kingdom of God in the teaching of Jesus. Bless us, Lord. We have failed to recognize that love is the definitive mark of the kingdom of God. Loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and our neighbors as ourselves. Forgive us, Lord. We repent of our failure to live out our faith in the world, working to restore God's kingdom here and now. Forgive us, Lord. We believe that the true mark of transformation is the fruit of the Holy Spirit in the lives of people. We will strive to show love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Holy Spirit, help us to transform our lives. We believe that the church growth is the normal outcome of seeking first the kingdom of God. We will strive to reach out to those who have not heard the gospel message or have not chosen to follow Jesus. Jesus, help us to neighbor, making those who don't know you a priority in our lives. We believe that an understanding of the kingdom of God will bring men and women to a deeper appreciation of the peace and the justice of God. We will strive to act justly, oppose all forms of violence, and be involved in seeking peace and justice in every situation, and when we are able, Father, help us restore your world. We believe that the kingdom of God is both a present reality and a future expectation. We believe that Jesus Christ will return and that it is God the Father's intention to reconcile all things to himself through Christ. Therefore, we will work and wait expectantly for the time when the full reign of the kingdom of God will be seen the whole creation will be healed and restored. Amen. You may be seated. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper as just a mark of our allegiance and our committed to Him. I want to give you some time to prepare your hearts, and when you're ready, you can make your way to one of the stations, break off a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup, and partake as a sign of your commitment to the King and His kingdom.